Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. So you, you talk with you know, 500, 1,000 of them, you convert one, you close on one. So really bad conversion. So then the cost that you have to go through that process are huge, right? You have a whole team, it costs you millions of dollars to get to those deals and to, to, to close on those deals. So that's the first big issue. I compare that from a, a fund standpoint to the, you have taxi drivers, you sending taxi drivers to knock on people's door and to ask them if they need a ride. That's basically what we were doing. <laughs> that's great. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for lending me your ears. And the only non-renewable resource you've got, that, of course, is your time. Wherever you are, however you have decided to participate in this thing we call podcast, I know that you could have selected hundreds of options and you chose to be here with us. We are going to honor that commitment and we're going to return it tenfold in value, I promise. Today's entrepreneur is Jan Hispa, the CEO and co-founder of Landgate. If you, like me, have never heard of Landgate, fear not. You're going to want to stick around to understand why NextEra led Landgate's Series B to the tune of 10 million and how this company is changing the way that developers and landowners interact with one another to create more security and opportunity for all those involved throughout the value chain and across the value chain of energy, not just solar. If these kinds of conversations just excite the heck out of you, well, you're in luck, especially if you've never found Suncast before, because we've got almost 500 such conversations right here in the Suncast feed. You just got to hit that subscribe button or follow if you're on Spotify, hit the bell so you're notified twice a week when these episodes come out. We interview founders like Johan twice a week, those who are on the front lines delivering the clean energy economy companies that are changing the landscape and helping us all through this climate crisis. Special thanks to the Solar Warriors who've been along with us for more than 500 episodes now. Really appreciate you. Also a quick hat tip to our friends over at Antenna Group who connected me with Johan. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as I mentioned, Jan is a founder, co-founder of a company that we'll talk about here today, Landgate, but he's got a fascinating background in engineering. The guy actually holds four credential degrees uh, and and not just like, you know, art, history and, and the like. He's got a phenomenal journey. We're going to dig into that journey a bit and understand more about the making of an entrepreneur I've become fascinated with and I want to learn more about in this conversation. With that, Jan, welcome to Suncast. And Nico, thanks for having me. I'm always in, you know, intrigued, surprised even, as this industry content, continues to expand and grow, I can't possibly keep up with all of the amazing companies and entrepreneurs in the space. I'm grateful for uh, friends like Antenna who can surface organizations like Landgate for me to kind of dig into your backstory. I have, uh, having had a number of really intriguing conversations with you recently, I think one of the things that would be fun to start with that would help folks really kind of understand a bit of your backstory. Tell me about the moment in your childhood that really catalyzed your belief in yourself and your ability to really leave a dent in this world or do something out of this world. Nico, is, I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So in terms of background, I'm a uh, Hispanic guy with a mixed um, uh, heritage in terms of like, you know, Spanish, Italian, French. I grew up in, uh, in between um, Spain and France, uh, bouncing between the two countries. And how I started this entrepreneurial journey. So imagine that 10 years old kid who lives in a village. I'm going to say village, like a mountain village of 80 people. I've always wanted, always waited my whole life to have that village reach 100 people. Never did, never did. 
So always still less than 100, and uh, even today. And so I was in that village, ranching, farming village, knew everybody, and Jim Irwin, astronaut. So James Irwin came to the town next to the village, big town, a few thousand people. And so very Christian guy, uh, Jim Irwin, and um, he came to talk, and he had actually a very good, um, he, he spoke in French half of the time, so a uh, very small guy. So he gives his speech, and uh, there's this um, pilot scientist talking to all of us coming from the U.S. At some point, he, uh, at the end of the, of the speech, he asked the audience, hey, can I, um, anyone wants to come to have an autograph? And then this 10-year-old kid runs to the, um, uh, to the podium, that was me, and I didn't even ask my parents, and got there, and then he signed that. He wrote it in, um, um, in French, actually, and he said, I'm, I'm going to translate, United in the Love of God and uh, Jim Irwin. And at that time, I was, I'm going to go to the US. I'm going to be either a, a pilot or a scientist. So then at that point, worked towards that goal. And I got into the French Air Force Academy, which obviously... The, the Top Gun movie really helped a lot to strengthen that decision to get into the, <laughs> right? Which, yeah. which is like in, uh, right now, this is the Top Gun Maverick that, uh, that came out. So um, I'm going to take my kids to go watch it this weekend. When I had that movie, when I saw that movie, I was like, okay, well, between Jim Irwin and that movie, I'm, I'm, I got to go, do that. So got into the French Air Force Academy and earned my bachelor degree there. You commit when you go to the grad school, and I decided to take the scientist route instead of the pilot because, in the let's say the French Air Force is not the same as the U.S. Air Force, where you have a lot of planes and investments and um, resources, and less resources. So you sign up and you have like 15, 20 percent chance to become a pilot. I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do that. So became a scientist, earned my uh, first master's degree in uh, in Paris, and then the second one uh, that was in civil engineering, second one in uh, geomechanics from the UK, from the University of Birmingham. And then the third master went to the US, UT Austin in um, uh, petroleum engineering. And then the fourth master was from um, Sue Boulder in, um, that's where I get I got my MBA. And it's where you live now in Denver. Correct. Uh, well, in the, in the yeah, the Denver area, I presume. What a journey inspired by one of the original American astronauts who walked the moon, Jim Irwin, famously part of the Apollo 15 mission, eighth person to walk on the moon. Um, I'll link to, for those who want to read more about it, I'll link to his Wikipedia. But it's a great example of how early on as a 10-year-old, uh, some, someone can serve as a mentor. They can serve as a catalyst in your life in the way that as we proceed uh, through our years, many, many others can often be and, and often do sort of stand in that gap of inspiration for us. You had a, a lot of what I might characterize as non-traditional uh, sort of background to the way that you grew up, the way you were educated. We have had you and I a number of conversations around education and I'd like to dig in a bit about the influence of high school, the selection of educational track and the selection of college. Uh, you've gotten four degrees, which is, you know, four times more than most of the folks in my family. And so I, uh, you know, I like to say, uh, you know, as old, as old fogies, sometimes we're like, you know, kids these days, but many uh, of our kids are selecting what colleges to go to. You recently got back from a road trip to take your daughter to try and select her educational Path. I'd love to hear about first your high school experience and how that informed uh, the way that you thought about education and, and your journey. And then we can circle back around to sort of now passing that along to the next generation. So high school, um, not at all what kids do today. So I went to a <laughs> Jesuit monastery boarding school. And, and I'll tell you stories there, not all the stories. Okay. I have to keep some, like <laughs> uh, too many people listening. But um, I'll tell you the ones I can say. Um, I was uh, getting in Sunday evening and then leaving Saturday afternoon. 
for the years of high school uh-huh. and uh, dormitories. So no parents, no nothing. I was lucky when I got there, they merged the covent next door. The girls, the yeah. girls. So I got in where <laughs> they were not just dudes, they were girls as well. So that was a plus. <laughs> that was a plus when I got in. Um, but I'll tell you the stunning part was from, so you had normal studying from 8 to 4.30 p.m. And then 4.30, you had a break with some snacks. From 5 to 7, you had a desk, about four feet desk, four or five feet desk, your desk. And you were seated on that desk in a gigantic room with all the other kids. And everyone had the other desk at least six feet away from each other. You could not stand up. You could not talk to anyone. You had to sit and be on your desk from five to seven. And then seven to eight, you go have dinner. And then you do the desk thing again from eight to nine, stuck on your desk. Pretty tough. And kids now, they complain. When I have my kids complain that they have homework and all that, say, do you want the, the high school that I went to? Because it could be worse. So it's three hours of effectively, uh, it, was around, it was designed to help you study. I presume. It was designed for, for kids to make sure they were studying. I mean, obviously there yeah. was no phone back then. Uh, we started like coding on our calculators to uh, create games yeah. on our calculators. So that's like what- TI-85. Exactly. Yep. Those, so that's, that's what we were like doing um, to kind of kill the time sometimes. Uh, but you had no choice. You had to study. Did you have a sense early on, obviously you mentioned that you had this aspiration to be a pilot or an astronaut. How did you begin to decide uh, on the path that led you ultimately to the Air Force? Yeah, pilot or scientist. So pilot mm-hmm. or scientist. And as I said, like I wanted to be a pilot or scientist, then Top Gun movie happened. And I was like, I got <laughs> to go to the Air Force. And then I'm going to see, um, I went to the Air Force, had the bike, <laughs> had everything, <laughs> had everything. Movie. <laughs> I love it. That's fun. Did you always have a sense that you were more entrepreneurial than entrepreneurial or sort of a more of a start your own company kind of person? Where did that spirit come from? Well, the Air Force is, is, is fun. Lots of good discipline and lots of fun stories. And, and I love them. Um, like in the military, I love them camaraderie that it's creating where it's, it's bonding people. The best friends I have, they're still from that time. But it's, it's, it's pretty stuck. Like you don't have much more creativity there. And uh, the entrepreneurship, uh, being scientists and, and discovering new things became much more appalling, like appealing at that point. Why four different degrees? That's a good question. So you, you, that's the philosophy of education. You see my cup, right? So mm-hmm. let me turn it, right? So you have like, if you imagine like a, a PhD type guy, mm-hmm. they're going to keep digging through that cup and like going deeper and deeper and deeper and trying to analyze it. Yeah. Right. So you go deeper and deeper and deeper in the same direction. My way of looking at it is I'm getting a better view. If I look at it from multiple directions. Yeah. Quickly. And when you look at things from multiple directions, I feel I have a much better view than, than if I keep digging in the same direction having multiple degrees from multiple places that have different way to study, different way to look at things. It enlarges your, your vision. It's like studying languages, right? Like you have all those like uh, international schools saying like, hey, bring your kids. It's going gonna, it's gonna to enlarge your languages. And it does. It does because they, they look at a world and then right away they understand that they can say the same thing differently, but not every word translate the same. And then it... it it makes a gymnastic in your mind. So with the languages, you know, speaking five languages, looking at it from a, let's say the continental European way of educating is very scholastic, academic. So extremely high level of science, math, physics, but very academic, not very practical. You go to the US, it's much more team project oriented. So you get less deep into the academic part. You know how to resolve something that's going to help you from a company standpoint. But then when you put the two together, well, then you can do the teamwork and the project work as well as going deeper 
into understanding the problem, right? So that, that, that's what I mean. I appreciate that. When we first met, you said that you sort of dived so deep, you sort of do a PhD on every challenge and you do it very quickly. I think you even whipped that you probably have like 50 PhDs by now. Do you have particular methodology for knowledge acquisition that helps you do that quick iteration? Be positive about it. Know that you're going to get it done. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid of the challenges. You take them on and you can throw yourself in a jungle and know that you're going to, with some a little bit of time and effort, you can become an expert. And if, you, if, you, if you're learning with the pleasure of learning, then it makes learning much, much easier. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular, obviously at all, during all of this, you are earning and you are now even, uh, you are digging into sort of how renewables work, how climate science supports the work that you're doing. And you still have a business and a a full-time sort of role to carry. How do you compartmentalize the learning and get such that you get through the things that you want to learn and iterate quickly while also sort of building a company or building a career? I have 36 hours in my day, don't you? You borrow some from your children. Oh, <laughs> You're yeah. lucky you have four. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I get it. You get three hours per child. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm um, yeah, w- work a lot. and um, I guess specifically, are you doing it like in the mornings and the evenings? Is there some way that you think about structuring the learning? Or is it something that's just always ever present for you? It's the mindset. No, it's just the mindset. I mean, it's... If you start your day early, like 5 a.m., you the, the 5 to 8 a.m. is a peaceful time where you can do more work. Um, mm. What time do you go to bed to get up at 5 a.m.? About like 10. Okay. 11, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you wanted to talk about the, 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 the college Envy trip, right, also? Yeah, I did. I want to I bring it back to sort of how do... Not only do you think about it with your now passing it along to your children, but also, you know, many, many of us are thinking about this for our families and for our team. So I just came back from a college RV trip. Do not do what I've done. It was way too much. And that's how I, 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 I run the company. And I, my son told me that with a smile. And he said that when we, with you, when like, you know, together, you give a lot of rewards, but you give a lot of work too. And then I heard it from my older son and I was thinking, well, that's exactly what the feedback I'm getting from the employees too. So there must be a trend there. I'm overly optimistic in everything that can be achieved. So that college RV trip, uh, we did 4,000 miles in eight days, drove from Denver Holy moly. all the way to... Um, uh, Bar- it's it's yeah. understandable because you have a 36-hour day. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So uh, drove drove all the way from Denver to... Boston going through University of Notre Dame and uh, Cornell and then back down from um, through DC, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins, Carnegie Mellon, Washington University in St. Louis. So doing a a trip of, um, you know, Boston College, multiple colleges there with her. Uh, She wants to go to the East Coast. Doing that with the flu, the whole trip, the whole family had the flu. Me driving until like 1 or 2 a.m. Uh, with a 33-foot trailer that you have to drive through the East Coast, like New York and D.C. and all of that. I don't know if I'd do it again. But, hey, we did it. Came back. Um, we had two babies in the car. So you can imagine two oh, babies yeah. with the flu. You drive like 500 miles a day. What I can imagine <laughs> is that your wife is a saint. She is. <laughs> yes. If you're listening... Uh, Senora Hispa, thank you. This you are you are truly the the rock that supports Landgate and other companies like it. But I think the takeaway also for me is I'm listening to you because I remember you said she actually likes Washington University uh, in St. Louis, and few people really know that university, even though it's a great school, it's well ranked in in the categories that they want to rank in. And it sounds like the takeaway is figure out what their presumed ranking is and don't take them to the one that you maybe least like uh, on the last, as the last of the trip, because recency bias may, might factor in. If, if it actually is as good as the others from a, from a feel perspective, it might feel like the better choice. <laughs> Emotion is such a fickle, uh, a fickle uh, element of this. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let me, let me talk about it also from a, 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 I'm sure like people are li- like listening and thinking like education is free in Europe, right? What do you think about it? 
so the, the, the graduate study I've done, let, let, let's talk about it, like uh, uh, free education in, in, in Europe, continental Europe. Right. Um, yeah. The places I went to for graduate schools in, uh, let's say, in France, extremely good, very selective, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, But no one knows about them. So yeah. no one knows about them. They will know about like big universities like uh, Sorbonne. But what happened in France in, uh, in the 70s, all the students went striking saying they want to get into the, the universities for free and they don't want any selection. So after that, the government said like, okay, fine. You get a high school diploma, you can get into any university you want. What? Exactly. No selection, all free. Guess what happened to the quality of the degrees? It went like, boo. And right. so the system found itself because the, 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 the companies, the industry was like, I need quality people to work. Right. So they, they had all those small, like Oxford type colleges that popped up, popped up. And that's where like the most selective students go to, right. but no one knows right. about those. So at the end, let me put it that way, you know, capitalism finds its way, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you want to yeah. make it free, it finds its way. I would not hire a kid from Sorbonne. <laughs> I would not. Right. Um, so because the quality of the education is not there. And, and because you can select. And you cannot select them. I mean, my daughter would have the option to go study in Europe, but do I want that? I think, I think the US system from a, an education standpoint in terms of like focusing on teamwork, project, yeah. industry applied type work. Like you mm -hmm. come out, you can work. You don't study a whole bunch of academic things. And I think it's better and it's worth the money and, and the fame of the diplomas that you get. So that, that's my philosophy on it. You know, as we think about what you were trained in, one of the things you said, uh, obviously, when you went down to Texas is uh, you, you're effectively a geophysicist. You spent some time in oil and gas. This is something that will interest folks that are listening for sure. I'd love to hear how the, the engineering and the oil and gas component of your, of your career factors into sort of how you think about the world right now and the journey that brought you ultimately into renewables. I call it energy, right? You know, back then, what, like 20,000 years ago, they were using what, furs for heat. Then, you know, there was fire. So they were burning biomass. We still do burn biomass, by the way. In Africa, they burn a lot of biomass, which is the worst you can do for the environment. Then there was coal. Then there was oil and gas. Well, now there's renewable. Imagine in 20, 30 years, Nico, you're going to have a new type of energy. Let's just say, let's say fusion. Fusion, you're going to have like your, your cell phone is going to have like a fusion reaction that's going to power the whole cell phone. And then they're going to make fun of the renewable guys. Like, they, like the renewable guys now make fun of the oil and gas guys saying like, <laughs> you guys are outdated. Like you polluting the, the entire planet with all those like, um, you know, PV cells and all of that. Yeah. Didn't you think about the lithium that you were going to leach into exactly, the ground with exactly. all these batteries? So and, at mm -hmm. the end, the bottom line is like, we, we, we all trying our best and we all need energy to fuel the economy and everything we're doing. And that energy source is evolving. And I think everyone yeah. is part of the solution and renewable now is what's growing the most. I doubt it's going to be that in 20, 30 years. They'll probably find something even better. And yeah. You know, my kids will evolve to that. Hey, solar project owners and developers, are infrequent field checks in your operations and maintenance plan and oversight? Do you need proper insight? Well, let data drive your maintenance. Our friends over at 60 Hertz are in the cloud so that you spend less time on the ground and their app is a snap. 60 Hertz in your pocket will help bring solar to the socket. You can learn more about how 60 Hertz can help your operations and maintenance plan at mysuncast.com forward slash 60HERTZ. That's 60 Hertz. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher Energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative 
solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. You know, what's interesting to me is that you're joining the renewables sector or you know, expanding into renewables as a part of energy. It's not your first rodeo in energy. Uh, you've been in raw materials and oil and gas. I'd love to hear about your background as a project developer that informed specifically the challenges that you identified in the marketplace and how you are, are thinking about serving them. Two challenges. So I, I started working as a as a uh, operator and developer uh, back then for um, 11 years. And then after that, I worked with private equity money, deployed capital, buying, leasing from landowners and flipping, right? It was flipping game to larger operators, developers, making good money doing that. There were two big issues, two big problems. The first one is sourcing deals. How do you get that landowner to lease his or her land or minerals or how do you get them to lease? How do you get to them? Number one, first problem. Second problem was valuing those deals. So to, to source those deals, we needed an army of landmen, right? So you have people, landmen, like they knock on, on doors, they send mailers, good Lord, they think they are like geniuses and they send mailers to those landowners, which you tr- they treat those mailers the same way you treat those credit card uh, spams that you get, right? Yeah. That you just put it in the trash. <laughs> they knock on doors, they call, call. And what's the conversion rate of that? I mean, it's point, gotta be in the point single two, digits. 0.2, 0.3%. So very low. So you, you talk with, you know, 500, 1,000 of them, you convert one, you close on one. So really bad conversion. So then the costs that you have to go through that process are huge, right? You have a whole team. It costs you millions of dollars to get to those deals and to, to, to close on those deals. So that's the first big issue. I compare that from a, a fund standpoint to the, you, you, you have taxi drivers, you sending taxi drivers to knock on people's door and to ask them if they need a ride. That's basically what we were doing. <laughs> That's great. And, and, um, and which is like, this is not efficient. What about an Uber app? Why do they need those riders? Why don't we let them come to us? And the, the main thing they need is the same, same reason you're going to Zillow. That's what we call ourselves the, the Zillow for land resources. Is the same reason uh-huh. you go to Zillow is you look at how much is it worth, Right. Like my wife and I, we're like, you know, driving with the kids to areas in New, in, in New England and say, oh, it looks great here. How much do you think that house is, is worth? Let's pull the Zillow app, put it up. Oh, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. So same, same reason. You want to know like more or less what is worth because you have no clue. Like you want to know, Nicole, where, you know, if you have land, is it worth like $100 per acre per year? Is it worth $1,000 per acre per year? Is it worth $10,000 per acre per year? What is the value range of your land for a solar lease or a wind lease? Is it a good location? How about common credits? So you wouldn't know that. So we've completely digitized that at Landgate in order to provide that information to the landowners, you know, making sure that they, we don't set expectations too high because we want to make sure that the deals happen. And they get to know a little bit of data about their property for all the resources on their land, and they come. And we use land real estate agents to bring even more and to spread the word and to bring even more landowners. So th- these are the two issues we resolve. is like deal sourcing and all the data and the tools to run economics. And running those economics, energy developers, um, investors, private equities, capital market, they can do that in a matter of like minutes. It takes minutes to run economics and we've completely digitized that for the landowners. So th- these are the two big issues that I was facing and the ones that we resolved. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's, there's millions of, of acres, hectares of land represented by thousands, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands at least owners and a really disparate market, both uh, at the developer level. I mean, I have... I have developers calling me and saying, what do you think I can get uh, in terms of leases, land leases in Oklahoma? 
and I know, I mean, thankfully I know folks that are doing land leases in Oklahoma. So I, I have a sense of the market pulse, but it's no different than a year ago, folks calling me and saying, Hey, what's the market price right now on solar modules. Right. But that, that, that somebody has to call like an industry insider suggests that there's a gap in the marketplace where people can create arbitrage unfairly price on one side or the other, but also where there's an opportunity to seamlessly create a platform. And that's one of the things that impresses me and obviously impresses Next Era and others about the work that you're doing. You mentioned to me that one of the things that you like to do is to figure out how to take your sort of uh, Delta Force team of, uh, of highly efficient operators and tackle a problem that would otherwise take days, weeks, months to accomplish and, and turn it into minutes. Can you give me an example of that? Multiple energy companies, whether on the oil and gas side or on the renewable side, they've tried to do what we've done, which is like put a dollar per acre value or dollar per acre per year on every parcel in the US. We've done that. 170 million parcels. We've done that for solar, wind, carbon, oil and gas, land value based on ag, ag forestry, all of that, water rights value. We have done that for multiple resources with a fraction of the staff that they had. Why? Because same, same discussion as the jungle, we did not get lost in processes. We get there and we say, well, what is the first step we can do to get there? Let's not shoot for like, we're going to get to the moon, but let's, let's, let's land somewhere <laughs> in between first and, and, and we're going to get there. And that's how we've been proceeding. Very efficient people uh, working remotely very efficiently. Yeah, that's what I call them. You call them Delta Force, you know, Navy SEALs, call them uh, extremely efficient. That's fascinating that you, you know, for those who aren't paying attention here for a second, you maybe hit rewind. Um, what Jan is saying is they've actually mapped all of, let's say, the available land where renewals or water or whatever could be valued uh, for landowners. And, uh, and they've given it a dollar per acre rating, essentially, so that there's sort of a fair, uh, like a fair Isaac rating on what, like a Zillow, of course, like what's the Zestimate for your land, so to speak, uh, if you're a landowner or if you're a project developer trying to go and talk to those landowners and wanting to give them a fair price. This is clearly something from a mineral rights perspective that would have been interested, interesting for the oil and gas uh, sector. How has the last uh, maybe three to five years changed in terms of your customer base? Well, I mean, I don't want to talk politics, but a lot of the landowners, majority of them, they are very conservative people. So the great thing about our platform is we look at all type of land resources. So we're not taking any political view. We're just letting the market dictate the value, the activity, and it's very much welcome by landowners. So we give them the valuation for the potential value for of their minerals for oil and gas, the same as we give the potential value for a solar farm or wind farm. And turns out that right now they're getting most, more activity and more value from a solar and wind standpoint or from a carbon standpoint. So you might have landowners coming to the, 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 the platform uh, looking for the value of their minerals for oil and gas. And turns out they, most of them, they list all their resources. They, they just need additional revenues. They need additional cash to keep doing what they love doing, farming, ranching. And that's supplemental revenue. Well, they get it from where it's coming right now. And, and that's, that's been working very, very well. Just from a, a energy, because I come from an energy developer standpoint operator, and it makes things much, much easier to have those guys come to you because they are willing to have, to have a deal. They're willing to have a deal. You don't need to come, you don't need to spend all that capital to go after them and, 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 and be in a relationship where you need to convince someone to sell, although they haven't come forward with it. And, and those guys put yourself in, 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 uh, in their shoes. If you get an offer from an, a, a developer in your mail or they call, call you and they say, Hey, I'm Nico, I want to offer you $600 per acre per year for a solar farm. You're in North Carolina. Your first question is going to be like, is that a good offer or not? I don't know. Yeah, because you right. don't know, you don't know anything. So then you're going to go to the lawyer. The lawyer is going to say like, I'm a lawyer. I can do law. I can look at the contract. I don't know if it's a good offer or not. And 
So then that puts you in a situation where you do not want to do the deal because you think that guy is a buyer, so he's probably lowballing you. And right. but you you have no knowledge of what is a good value. So then then that limits the transaction. So that's what we call it's it's restricting the flow of deals and transactions. When you provide a little bit of information that does not set expectations too high, which is the last thing we want to do, then Nicole, the, the valuation is around like 580 or something like that, 650. You can come back and say, okay, well, I'm in the ballpark here. I'm in the ballpark. It seems reasonable. You can talk with them. Then you can negotiate more. And as an energy developer, it makes your workflow so much easier. You know, I mentioned earlier that Nextera led your Series B. Congratulations on that. I mean, 10 million, something to, to sneeze at. It's you, you guys are hyper efficient. How big is your team? 25. 25 people. For folks who have no idea, maybe they're just being introduced to the very idea that there's this disparity and uh, and sort of a gap in the marketplace that allows for um, errors and arbitrage that really slows down the marketplace, candidly. What does the actual market look like on a year-over-year basis in terms of uh, dollar value, the, the TAM, so to speak, of the market that you serve? It's exceeding $4 trillion a year. So if you look at uh, big picture, because that market, the energy market, it's actually commercial real estate. It is commercial real estate. So if you look at it from a real estate standpoint, your residential uh, real estate market, it's around $8 trillion a year market. All the Zillow deals, everything that's happening, the house sales, all of that, $8 trillion a year. Commercial real estate market that gone under pressure since COVID, let's say around like... 15, 16, 16 trillion dollars a year. Commercial real estate. So the buildings, land is part of the commercial real estate. The land component of the commercial real estate, half a trillion dollar a year market. So it's fairly small, right? Compared to the commercial real estate. Like compared to like a a a a, a building, an Amazon like warehouse that you're gonna build, you compare that to the land itself. Well, the land is not doesn't have like tons of value. But now, if you look at the resources on the land, solar, solar farm, wind farm potential, uh, common credits, whether you have forestry or, or just soils, um, common credits, uh, minerals, water rights. So you add all those resource potential on your land, that's a $4 trillion a year market that has been historically separate and very slow moving because it requires a lot of people to contact those landowners and it requires a lot of engineers to run those economics. And I was one of them. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, it makes great sense to me why Nextera, the largest solar owner in the United States, at least in, in 2020, 2021, would be interested in uh, smoothing the edges of that process, right? Having technology on their side. Uh, I mean, that's a staggering number, $4 trillion. Is, is this something that, oh, my, you know, one of the things that occurred to me when you were saying that is, that, uh, and I've said this before in other uh, episodes, but one of my former bosses would say that solar is uh, just a, a, a real, it is a real estate deal without the occupancy risk, right? <laughs> and so when you think about yeah. it that way, it uh, it's no wonder it's attracting all the dirt merchants that were otherwise negotiating land leases and buying properties for one of a thousand uh, re, uh, restaurant fran- franchises and, and real estate development franchises, right? There are kind of two big categories of of land folks, and those are the ones that are working on real estate deals and the ones that are working on oil and gas deals, <laughs> right? Right, right. Well, let me let me add like a couple of comments. One is like, yeah, Nextera led the, the $10 million investment Series B. Um, they are a capital, it was their VC group. So they are on the capital side of the company. They don't have access to any clients' data. <laughs> They're just like saying, this is a great technology. We love it. Um, it's the future. So um, uh, we want to invest in your business, but um, it doesn't give them it's, any privilege. It it's doesn't a venture give them any arm, privilege. just like if it was Shell Ventures. It's a venture or, arm. Yeah. Exactly. It's a venture arm. Uh, Kimridge Common Solutions, uh, private equity out of New York, uh, co-invested along Nextera. They love the common side. One thing I'd say from a, a you, we're talking about leasing, right, for solar farm. Well, now, how about if you already have a solar farm or wind farm on your property or is being built? This is the hardest commodity right now. It goes within a matter of like weeks. When we have it hit the marketplace, 
within a matter of weeks, it's gone. It's someone so who wants to sell of, and they already have the lease tied up. So I'm a landowner. I have a solar farm, let's say, I don't know, um, I have um, um, 20 gar- megawatts. Guaranteed cash right? flows for 20 years. Yeah, or whatever. Exactly. 30, 40 years, right? You have yeah. guaranteed cash flows. This is the hardest commodity. So when, when they want to sell, so they don't sell the land. They sell the contract of those cash flows. Oh, that's and it. They're just flipping the contract, not the asset, not the land. Itself. No, not the land. Well, they, they're selling the future cash flows. They don't have to sell the land. And so they keep the land and they sell the future cash flows. That's the hardest commodity right now. You have so much, like so much ESG It's funny, I thought money. you were saying that yeah. it was the hardest, but it's the hottest. It's the hottest. hottest commodity on your platform because landowners are realizing they can pull that cash forward and- uh, ESG driven funds are realizing they can invest in these hard assets. And those ESG driven funds, they used to invest in minerals back then and to, to buy royalties. Well, that's the royalties for solar and wind. Now that's what they want. And, and then you add carbon on top of that, that's coming up. So they want to have that mix of like cash flowing, renewable royalties or carbon royalties. These are like hard commodities. And we have a lot of, I mean, you know, investors, private equities wanting to, you know, buy those. And I can tell you, we successfully source those deals. And just like we source like land for, to put a potential solar farm or wind farm, farm from a lease standpoint, we can also source those deals of renewable royalties. Very, very hard to get. Now, step back and think like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Right. They accumulated what, like uh, Bill Gates has a quarter of a million of acres in the US. Uh, Jeff Bezos did the same. Look at what the wealthy guys are doing. It shows you kind of the future where it's headed. Example, take Russia. All the millionaires are leaving Russia right now. They're all escaping and going to Dubai, right? So that happens before collapse of a country. Like the millionaires leave. Now in the US, you have guys like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos. They've invested their cash in land. Mm, Why? They're not leaving. They're not living. Why are they investing in land? Well, a couple of reasons. Land has a historically a low dividend, right? Like you don't you don't get a high dividend in land. But in terms of like when you're in an inflation inflation type environment like we are today, land is a very safe investment. So they move a lot of assets into land. So they buy land, and they don't look at the dividends they're going to make from land from an agricultural standpoint. They look at how much value land is going to increase because you get so much pressure from solar, wind farms, taking up more and more land. And then you get more pressure from like, well, population growing and wanting more land to, to, to just, you know, put houses and everything. So at the end, you have less land available and that commodity does not increase. So in the, t- in the times of inflation, they, they invest in land and they see their capital gain increase. It's increased a lot over the past two years. It's going to increase even more now that we have inflation like at 7 8%. So, so now with LandGate data, you're Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. Well, I can buy land knowing what's the good, where's the best land for common credits or where's the best land for potential solar farm. And then I can have very high dividends on my land as well. Dividends on the, on the solar side, 25%, right, of the value of the land on average. Like the solar rents that you would make on that land, you'd get very high dividends. So that's another type of data point that we bring to investors is like, well, you can invest in land with a better knowledge of where is the good land for all those potential resources. Yeah. This is fascinating, Jan. I wish we had more time to really dig into this. I know that folks are going to uh, just be geeking out because I'm learning a ton about a segment that it's unsexy. This is not something that you see written about in the New York Times, uh, not yet at least. And uh, you know, one of the things I definitely wanted to ask you is um, we talked a bit about basically you bootstrapped to um, to get to uh, Series A, Series B. Um, what did it take? for you, like you can answer this in a number of ways and I'll leave it to you, but what did it take to get there, to get to a series B as an entrepreneur? For those who are looking at you and thinking, what can I learn from this guy? What, what advice would you be able to impart around uh, product focus or maybe expectations 
that allow you to get to product market fit, to get to customers such that you can actually raise a successful Series B? My best answer to you is I'm going to ask for all the advice of everyone and listen to them. And that's actually how I think you're going to be successful is to try to be very open-minded and take much more feedback and much more ideas from people. So being flexible on your journey. And I, I mean it. I mean, if yeah, anyone and in has terms that, of either, yeah. even what your product is and, and who it's for. Exactly, exactly. Especially when, you, when you're creating something brand new, right? We're not like, we're not creating a new DocuSign system when DocuSign already exists and improving on it. We're not doing that. We, we're taking a, an industry that's uh, broken up, that has landmen, that has like tons of engineers to run economics. We've created tools to make that much faster. We created a marketplace to source those deals. This is brand new business. Now you have other industries that have done that with like, you know, Zillow has done that on the real estate, uh, Uber, Lyft, they've done that on the, on the, on the uh, rides. Inventory for rides, yeah. Right, but it, it's still different industries. So we, when you're doing something like that, you got to be super open-minded that your product, that your idea that you're starting with yeah. is not going to be the one you end up with. Well, we're, we're heading into a recession, high inflation. Raising capital is going to be harder. So congratulations on that. Um, valuations are going to be lower. I'd love to know as a heuristic for folks who are trying to think through like well, how much it's going to actually take and every business is different. But as a metric, how much more did you have to personally invest or raise than you thought you would to get where you are today? Well, it's like building your house, right? It's going to, the rule of thumb, if you want to build a house, it's going to take you yeah, twice as long and probably like twice as much money. So building a company, especially like a startup, like what we've done in a brand new, a blue ocean, took me three, four times more capital than I thought. So I thought I'd put in like three, $400,000 and ended up putting like a million and a half of my cash in the company. Well, you got to put skin in the game. And, and we got super lucky with all the investments, I have to say. And I want to think that we provoked that luck, but um, we have one of the best energy tech uh, VC that um, invested in us end of 2019 before the 2020 COVID energy in crisis a. in a Series A. And we got $2.5 million there. Which, right which company before was that? It was Rice Investment Group. Rice, great, okay. great guys to work with. They are out of the East Coast. And um, got super lucky there, very supportive of our business and the timing was impeccable for us. And so we could grow while people were like, I mean, shedding. And now we got that $10 million investment from next year, right before a recession. recession. Yeah. And, and where like tech companies start like laying off and we're hiring. Yeah, well... I'd say you're both lucky and good. And they say, yeah, I'd rather be lucky, uh, better, I'd rather be lucky than good. And uh, you're both. Um, Jan, I have a couple of quick questions as we wrap here. Uh, I'm super grateful for the time and the insight. And every time I chat with you, I feel like I, I learn about things I didn't know I wanted to learn about. Uh, and I appreciate that. I get to absorb from your 50 PhDs. Thank you. Um, <laughs> because as a component of getting those personal PhDs, you have to you have to absorb the wisdom of the ages, the wisdom of others. I'd love to know if there are any, maybe one, two, three sources of wisdom, uh, you know, bound in dead trees, we call them books, uh, or, or authors who have particularly inspired you or influenced the way you think about leadership or life or even uh, climate science that you would pass along to Suncast listeners. Like specific renewable guys, because I talked about Jim, Jim, Jim Irwin. Jim Irwin was a big guy for me. Yeah. And, no, I mean, uh, I mean, specifically, yeah. I'll, I'll say it differently. Like, are there books or uh, even uh, particular online resources that for you are, they were elemental in the way you understand life or business or, or maybe renewables. I'm kind of giving you a broad swath here, but it's kind of a recommendation for folks that want further reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll answer with a, a, a fun story with my wife about kids, kids education. And then I'll, I'll answer your, your, your question specifically. My wife, she reads books, right? She reads books about kids education. And then she comes and she says like, look, they're saying that we should do that with the babies or with the kids. And then I'm joking. I say, um, yeah, I wrote that book. 
Um, so I know <laughs> that's, that's what we should be doing. But um, she reads books. I talk to people. And what I like doing is I take a quick survey every time I talk with people about what they think and uh, what do they need. And in terms of like renewable energy or products, I want to talk with as many people as I can, developers, operators, uh, investors. And I get, that's my reading. These are all those guys that I'm reading from because the, the way I see those academic books, they're more like look back on what has worked rather than like looking forward what's going to work. Let me ask you a drill, drill down on that then. And I totally get it because I've built a career around it. <laughs> uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. The ability to pattern match and triangulate what works through talking with folks and getting primary alpha is, is, exactly. is critical. So what are there one, two, or three kind of filter questions that are always in the front of your mind that you're trying to solve for when you're trying to learn a new thing or learn, like go into a different direction? Let's say you're going to talk to 10 people. Do you have a series of questions you're going to ask all of them so that you can pattern match? One of the big problems you're facing right now. Mm. What would help you as a solution to make your work yeah. easier? And just, just like, just these questions. And then when you have like a couple that say the same thing multiple times, like, oh, well, I, there's something we should work on. Now that uh, PhD academic guy from a university who's going to write a pay, like a book yeah. about that, he's going to write it in 20 years about the stuff that you and I resolve yes. now by talking yeah, with right. all those people. Yeah. So it's more of a look back. That's right. Those guys. Is there a particular habit or consistent practice in your life that has yielded the greatest impact for you? Giving well, you, go, giving you leverage? I like talking with people. I'm yeah. a very friendly guy. I think we talked about like hiring talent. And um, I told you that my son's comment was like, I kind of, you know, I run the company like I, like, <laughs> like, like the company, like that my family's run. And um, so we do value our employees. They have like a lot of ownership in the company. We give them shares. They are owners of the company. So creating alignment with your clients or with your employees is, is very important. For example, like large corporations is very difficult, as good as they are, it's very difficult to create alignment because your, your, your boss's boss objective is going to be to have a, maybe a fat bonus at the end of the year and he's going to line up your work just to have his bonus and it's not going to be really good for, it, it doesn't align with your goals or maybe even the company's goals. Our goals are the same. We give them shares, we give them like, we align those interests and we treat them like family and which also means they got to pull their weight, which is the Navy SEALs type aspect of it. It's like, hey, we're small, you pull your weight. We, we are very, very generous, but it's a work hard, play hard type of environment. Even, even more so, I'd say like, like work tough, play tough yeah. <laughs> environment. I love it. Uh, in another conversation, I want to know how you structure those shares. It could be offline. I'm really curious. I know a lot of folks would, would love to know. Kind of Actual how you... shares, not options. Yeah. Actual shares that we bond issued shares and and they get very good ownership my goal is like every employee in that company i want them to become millionaire um that's my personal goal and yeah we have very good navy seals team i can totally identify with that um i recently spoke with a, a, a fellow in the industry who his company was just acquired relatively small like maybe thereabouts your size maybe double that size but less than 100 employees <clears throat> and he said i said how does it feel he said you know what the greatest day was he said i when i realized i stroked the check and by stroking that check like signing the deal i made 25 millionaires right? exactly like, he said that was he said that was the best feeling ever he says I, I didn't even pay attention to what was in my bank account he said the the fact that through creating this vehicle we made 25 millionaires through the business that we built he says it's the greatest feeling in the world i want to do it again <laughs> Yeah, right. no, exactly. I, I relay that feeling. Yeah. Well, I want to get that feeling. Yeah. I relay that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm in the same boat. I want to get that feeling. Uh, Jan, how could folks reach out and, and connect with you? Is there a particular channel that you like to be found? Just yeah, shoot me an email. Go on LinkedIn. There are not too many people with my name, so you'll find you'll find me for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. Well, we'll certainly um, link to your LinkedIn and uh, yeah. and. And then send me, send me, send me a LinkedIn, um, send me an email, yh at langate.com. Yep. Um, be happy to connect with you. 
we are in process of uh, hiring more talent. So if you want to be part of a Zillow of land resources and you want to work hard, play hard, like we, we want you. If you're a COVID, what I call a COVID employee, maybe go to a competitor. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well, John, let's end today as we always do with what we call a bold prediction. And I have a feeling that you have a particular uh, bent on where the industry markets are going. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking that you haven't already shared with us? What's in your crystal ball? Well, two years ago, 95% of our revenues were from mineral like uh, deals data because we sell like, you know, lead generation, we sell data and we sell also economic tools to, um, to energy developers, investors. So we sell those three things. Nine, like two years ago, 95% of our revenues were from uh, the good old oil and gas. Now it's completely flipped. 95% is like renewable. And I think carbon is going to take a bigger role but it's still a kind of a wild, wild west. I, I probably like count like one company a week that comes up with the word like carbon and crypto and put them together as buzzwords. And they're like, they're trying to like raise capital with that. And registry and carbon registries, you have like one popping every every week. So it's going to, I think the, the, the system and how it's going to work on the, on the carbon sequestration is going to, is going to clear, it's going to get clearer and it, it is getting clearer. I can see that. And we want to be at the forefront of that and bringing those common credits to the landowners in the US who between you and I, Nico, I trust more a 200 acre landowner in the US to take care of his forestry and grow and maintain his forest. than I trust a 100,000 acres in the Amazon saying, hey, I'm not going to cut those 100,000 acres Eh, just kidding. I cut them next door. So um, that's what we want to really help strongly with. Pushing renewables, pushing on the common side, where we bring the value to all the landowners. Like they should be paid. They should be rewarded landowners to take care of their of their land. And right now they haven't been paid to do that. And I think we're realizing that we do need that. And another study, I'll tell you, maybe for another podcast, but we just finished that study. I'll give you the, the headline. Mm. How, much, how much land of the US is required to go to zero carbon emission? How much land? So we've done the math. We've done the calculation. We spent multiple weeks doing that. Mm. And to turn all your land transportation, like vehicles, mm-hmm. freights, uh, trains, all of that, you turn it to green. Let's assume solar farms, right? It yeah. takes less acreage than wind farms. You turn all the production of electricity currently that is not coming from green or zero carbon emission type sources. So all the biomass, coal sources, right. oil and gas generated electricity, you turn that, let's assume again, you take you solar farms, going to need 26 million acres in the US. 26 million acres. That's our estimate. That's the size of Kentucky. It's 1% of the US land that you need. Now, the good news is if you think of it, it's kind of feasible, right? Because yeah. if, if people were telling you like, hey, you need like 25% of the US to do that, you're like, no, I can't, I can't do that. It's not yep. going to happen. It's like a 1%. quarter of Texas or less. <laughs> right. So it's feasible. You can yep. do that. So I'm, I think on the prediction, you're going to have a lot of pressure on land and um, in the US and the land market component of the real estate is going to increase substantially. You're going to have a lot of investors turning their investment to land, like looking at all those potential, all the land that is good for potential solar farms yeah. or potential wind farms and all the land that's good for carbon credits. That's my prediction. As that prediction comes true, we'll be tracking it here on Suncast and we'll be eager to have you back to see how your predictions uh, have worked out. I'll be thinking about how to deploy my own resources now with this knowledge towards uh, a bet on carbon sequestration and of course, solar and and wind. Johan Hispa is the CEO and co-founder of Landgate Corporation. Johan, 
I'm really fascinated by the conversation we've had. Thank you for your generous time and insights. And I, I do hope to get a chance to see you again soon. Same here. Excited to be part of uh, Suncast podcast and um, talk to you soon, Nico. My goodness, if you didn't know, now you know, in the words of my friend Trevor Noah. <laughs> that was fantastic. Jan, thank you for your generous time, my friend. I loved every second. Solar Warriors, you are now well-armed to better understand exactly how the intermediary sector of this uh, renewable economy works. There are real people brokering real property, and it's a $4 trillion industry. And companies like Landgate are making it easier for everyone in the middle. So if you are interested in connecting with Johan, obviously he just gave you a way to do that. If you'd like me to make a personal introduction, reach out to me. Johan has said uh, he will absolutely respond to every introduction that I make to him. So feel free to email me, Nico at mysuncast.com, and I will connect you directly with Johan and his team and make sure that you get taken care of over there. Since uh, I know that you are eager to keep learning, you, my fellow Philomath, can find resources and highlights from this and every single discussion that we have on Suncast, all 500 episodes plus, along with social media links, book recommendations if there were any, <laughs> and more over at mysuncast.com. I hope that you'll check it out. And while you're online, would you please go ahead and give us a rating and review as that helps others find the show just the way you did through their curiosity, searching, and the now 60 plus, almost 70 plus uh, five-star reviews that we have help validate that this is a resource that helps folks through their clean energy career or building their business. You can do that super, super fast at ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. Would you do that? I would be so, so grateful. Join us again next week. Twice a week, we bring you clean energy leaders who go into tactical advice on Tuesdays and practical career-oriented executive profile style. How did I build this business in the clean energy interviews on Thursdays that tend to be long like this one? They're always deep and valuable. I hope that you got value out of it. I certainly did. Thanks to our sponsors who help make this free to you so that you can continue coming back each and every week and giving us the most valuable resource that you've got, which is your time and attention. You can learn more about our sponsors and how you could partner with us over at mysuncast.com forward splash, forward splash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle.